0: I love being a part of a church that cares for our neighbors and the nations. Uh, This morning I was out in the lobby and I saw a couple bring in five Operation Christmas Child boxes all full and I said, way to go! And she said, well, we brought 20 in last week. Yeah. Uh, Mike and Jody Russell, for many years, have had a get-together on a Saturday night, and they they just pack shoeboxes, and last night, Jody just told me, they had 59 shoeboxes filled, and that group also took care of all the postage uh, for those boxes, so... So this week, I was working on this message at a McDonald's, and I met a man. When he found out I was a pastor, he thought he should give me some advice. <laughs> so this, this is what he said. He said, keep the sermon short. <laughs> and then I wondered, did one of you put him up to that? Well, I'm going to take that to heart today because we're going to take time at the end to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Hey, wouldn't it be great to be part of what God was doing during the time of the book of Acts? I mean, what would that be like to not only watch the events happen, but to be right in the middle of it, to see thousands of people converted and one day, to see the Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost, to see lives changed, to see people who are living for pagans, pagan deities, now have their lives transformed and living and giving their lives for the Lord Jesus. What would that have been like? Well, living for Christ back then was certainly not easy at all. Someone captured it like this. A Christian back then was completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. <laughs> the first Christians counted the cost. They were sold out to Christ. Listen, they had to be. They had to be. There weren't many Cultural Christians just going through the motions. It was way too difficult to identify with Christ and then not live for him. Hey, wouldn't you agree it's becoming that way in our culture today as well? And I think that's a good thing. I see more and more Christians becoming more committed to Christ and more convictional in their doctrine and their discipleship. Praise yeah, praise God is right. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus spelled it all out. There is a cost to follow him. If anyone would come after me, okay, here's what Jesus has to do. If we want to come after him, let him deny Himself, Oh, life's not about me? No, it's not. And take up his cross. That's more than jewelry around our neck or something up on our walls. No, to take up your cross is to walk to the place of execution where people were executed. And Jesus says, and follow me for whoever would save his life will what? Lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I'm going to invite you to turn to the second half of Acts chapter 19. We're continuing in our journey through the book of Acts, and here's what we're going to learn today, or I hope we learn, it's costly to follow Christ, but the cost is worth it. And I see three different costs we're going to need to pay as Christ followers. First of all, the cost of our plan. Secondly, the cost of our popularity. And thirdly, the cost of our persecution. Let's look first at the cost of our plans. I'm in chapter 19, verses 21 and 22. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there... I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So that phrase after these events should take us back to the first part of Acts chapter 19. Well, what events? Well, let me just remind us of some. The believers extolled, magnified the name of Jesus. And then what happened? They started confessing their sins. You see, when we see God as holy and mighty, we can't help but look at our own lives and go, "Uh uh-oh. So we confess. They did more than that. They repented of their sins. They brought their books filled with incantations and spells and evil, and they burned them. And as a result, look at verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, mightily. So in verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to take another journey. So in his spirit, he wanted to go with the gospel and he believed the Holy Spirit wanted him to go as well. His plan was to travel back to Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem. So let's get our bearings. It's helpful to look at a map at this point. So, um, so let's look at that red or pink area called Asia. That's modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is about two-thirds of the way down on the coast. There's a little yellow dot there. Ephesus, that's where Paul is. <laughs> But listen, this is what he says. I need to go to Macedonia and Achaia, so that's to the left there, west. That's the orange area and the green area. We've visited some of those places, at least in our journey. That'd be like Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica in the green area, Corinth, Athens. Paul says, I need to go there and then go to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's way down here on the bottom right so what's going on there if Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem why didn't he just go east or southeast to Jerusalem he's like I got to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then to Jerusalem well here's why Uh, Paul we have some clue about this in first Corinthians chapter 16 Paul wanted to pick up a generous offering the people from those two regions took up an offering well why'd they do that because their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were going through a famine. And they were poor. And interestingly, the people who lived in Macedonia, Cai, were not wealthy either. But they took up an offering for their brothers and sisters. We're reminded here that we're part of a global church, right? We're brothers and sisters with people all over the globe. In verse 2, we're given some giving guidelines. It reads like this, 1 Corinthians 16, "...on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside." Giving is one of our four values here, and we believe when we give, God uses that for his glory and so that the gospel can go to our neighbors through our Go Team partners here and to the nations. And we have giving boxes in both lobbies and an online option through our app and website. So after delivering this offering, this was Paul's plan then he said he wants to go to Rome. Watch this. So he wants to go west, Macedonia to Cai, pick up the offering, go all the way to Jerusalem, and then he says, I want to go to Rome. Where's Rome on the map? Oh, it's not on there. It's over here. It'd be left of there, Italy. That's where Paul wants to eventually go. We, from this point on in the book of Acts, we see Paul trying to get to Rome, He can't wait to get to Rome. Why? Well, Rome is the political capital of the world. In Romans 1.13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I've often intended to come to you. So he's writing to the church of Rome, and he says, but thus far I've been prevented. So watch this. Paul made plans to get to Rome, but it didn't happen when he wanted to go And it certainly didn't plan, it didn't happen the way he intended. When he was in Jerusalem, he got arrested. He then got detained in Caesarea, that's just north of Jerusalem, for two years. He's put on a ship. There's a shipwreck. And then he finally gets to Rome as a prisoner. Now, because Paul couldn't leave immediately, he sent Timothy and Erastus while he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Proverbs 16, 9 says, this is a good verse to write down, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Someone has said this, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Do you get frustrated when your plans either blow up or get redirected? Yeah, I do, too. But listen, God works his way and his will for his purposes, for his glory, our ultimate good, and sometimes that means our plans don't happen the way we want them to. We're like, God, I didn't see that coming. God's like, I did. We can trust him. He is a good God. Now, I wonder if you would embrace this truth. God works through people. He works through problems, all to accomplish his purposes. So here's what happened in this setting. Because God changed Paul's plans, he had more time to devote himself to the effective work in Ephesus. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 16. By the way, because he stayed in Ephesus longer, He wrote a letter. It's in your Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. Remember, he had been to Corinth, and now he writes a letter because that church is having a lot of trouble. But listen to what he writes. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Opportunity often arrives with adversity. Now, many of these adversaries and adversities begin to surface in the next section. It's costly to follow Christ, but the cost is worth it. Second cost, the cost to our popu- of our popularity. I'm in verse 23. Now we read about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. <laughs> That's an understatement. One of the names for Christianity in the book of Acts was the way. I love that Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life those who follow Jesus enemies would say oh they're part of the way that's a great name even for us to use today except that it's been sabotaged by a cult who uses that name today well, as we established last week, the devil causes disturbances to distract unbelievers and to attack believers. That's why you and I are called to put on the armor of God daily. By the way, we ran out of these booklets last week. We've ordered a number more. It's called How to Put on the Armor of God. I encourage you to pick one up, even use it as you minister to other People now listen to verses 24 and 27 through 27. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, "So he's like, we got a problem, men. You know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this." Well, let's do a little background. Artemis, also known as Diana in Roman mythology, she's considered the goddess of hunting. Some people are out hunting right now, perhaps. I grew up in a deer hunting family, and so those who hunted, they looked to her. She was also the goddess of fertility, so if someone wanted to have a baby, they looked to her, they prayed to her. But unfortunately, her picture is very grotesque Along with idol worship of her, there was a lot of indulgence and sexual immorality among her adherents. According to local legend, Artemis had fallen from the sky near Ephesus, so these superstitious people made her a goddess. Historians believe that it was actually a meteorite or a piece of a meteorite that had fallen, and that piece of meteorite looked like a woman, so they set it up and started worshiping it. One inscription found at Ephesus refers to her as the greatest god. Now, there was a temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple took 220 years to build. This temple was larger than a football field. It covered an area four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was supported by 127 marble columns, each weighing 150 tons. This temple also functioned as a bank because merchants and worship or merchants and kings would deposit their gold and silver here thinking that Artemis would protect their worldly goods. So Demetrius, then, is a silversmith. He provided silver to craftsmen, to artisans, who made statues of the goddess Artemis that people could take home and bow down to. They also made like miniature replicas of her temple. During the spring, worshipers would arrive in Ephesus. They'd participate in a drunken festival to Artemis, which was filled with decadent debauchery, and they would purchase all these idols. So here's what happened. As more and more people came to faith in Christ, guess what? They stopped worshiping Artemis. They stopped going to the temple. They stopped purchasing silver idols idols statues and replicas of the temple so demetrius is alarmed by that and so he gets all these people together and he stirs them up and he appeals to three powerful and personal motivations first he said this is hitting us in the pocketbook check out verse 25 men you know that from this business we have our wealth. He's trying to rile them up by telling them these new believers in Jesus were ruining their business. Well, next he appeals to their piety, puts a bullseye on the apostle Paul, and he says, this Paul, would you notice how pejorative that is? This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. You know, often one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is organized religion. And Paul wrote about the power of the gospel over false gods, 1 Thessalonians one nine, He says to the people at Thessalonica, you turn to God from idols. Incidentally, the craftsmen would know these gods weren't real, wouldn't they? I mean, they started with some silver, they started carving and making and forming and than selling these idols. I mean, wouldn't they know that these idols aren't real? I mean, they're the ones who made the idols. I'm reminded of Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they do not see. Well, next, he appeals to their patriotism, he appeals to their nationalism, implying Ephesus would lose its place of prominence in Asia and even the whole world if Artemis' adoration was curtailed. Listen what we read there in verse 27. Um, he says this, There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia in the world worship. That phrase counted as nothing means reckoned as not even one thing. He's like, she's going to lose her magnificence. That means her brightness, her glory, her majesty. And if people stop worshiping her, they'll stop coming to Ephesus and our whole economy will plummet. Ephesus will lose its luster, will lose its prominence among other cities. When I knew that we were going to be studying this passage, I reached out to some of our Go Team partners who serve in the country of India. And because I knew that India worships idols or people in India follow, especially in Hinduism, are worshiping all these various gods. God's. And so I asked them if they could share a true story about someone who's raised in that environment and has since come to Christ. Listen to these words, and as I read, know that when you give to the ministry of Edgewood, part of what you give goes to support Go Team partners who have ministry like this to people living in darkness. She writes, I was brought up in a good Hindu family. We went to the temple a few times a week to pray and give offerings to the gods. In our home, we had a small puja room for worshiping the different gods. In my teenage years, I became even more devout, visiting the temple every day, leading my family in each of the fasting and celebration practices that go along with each Hindu holiday. The more devout I became, however, the more confused and discouraged I became. How could I know for sure if any of the gods were listening to my prayers? What if I was making one of the gods angry by giving sacrifices to another god? And and, and why didn't I have peace when I was doing everything I could to serve and worship the gods? And then she writes that a family member gave her a picture of Jesus, so she picks it up and writes this, I went home and I added the picture of Lord Jesus to the wall with all the pictures of the other gods. I began to pray to Lord Jesus just like I prayed to all the other gods. Every day for two weeks I prayed to Lord Jesus among along with all the other gods. Then one day I lit my incense and I began my prayers to all of the gods and to Lord Jesus as well. I walked out of the room to get some more supplies when I heard something like a huge gust of wind blow into the puja room. I remember thinking that the sound was strange because there's no windows in that room. When I came running in, it's a true story. I saw that every idol that had been standing up on the shelf had fallen to the ground And every picture that had been attached to the wall had come down, all except for the picture of Lord Jesus. And in a moment a feeling of peace flooded my heart and mind for the first time in my life. I looked at the broken idols and the fallen pictures and said out loud. She said this out loud. (laughs) This is great. And she's looking at these fallen idols. If you can't even keep yourself up on the wall, then you're not worthy of my worship. (laughs) So from that day on, I began to seek after Lord Jesus. It took me three full months, but I finally found another believer who could teach me about Jesus. I began to read the Bible and learn about the one true God and about his son Jesus, whose power had been displayed in my very own house. I started faithfully following Jesus and was baptized. I teach Hindi, the language, to foreigners in the day and in the evenings. I teach the Bible to teenage girls in a nearby slum. I am so happy to be able to share with others what Jesus himself shared with me, that he truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And we get the privilege of partnering with missionaries like that. Friends, I wonder, are you ready to have your plans changed? Are you ready to lose your popularity? You see, it's costly to follow Christ, but the cost is worth it. The next cost, oh, this is hard, the cost of persecution G. Campbell Morgan's words are worth pondering. The church persecuted has always been the church pure, and therefore the church powerful. The church patronized has always been the church in peril, and very often the church paralyzed. One pastor suggests a good question for us to consider. I'm going to ask it twice, just in case we miss it the first time. So here's the question. Ask it of yourself. Am I doing anything significant enough on behalf of God's kingdom to stir up the enemy's opposition? Am I doing anything significant enough on behalf of God's kingdom to stir up the enemy's opposition? You see, conflict always arises when the gospel is faithfully preached. Warren Wiersbe said it like this, whenever the gospel is preached in power, it will be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. And so if Demetrius' goal was to rile them up, look at verse 28, it worked. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, These workers, these craftsmen, these artisans were emotionally enraged and they're filled with, which means to be filled with impetuous indignation leading to violence. That word for crying out refers to the hoarse cry of a raven. I appreciate the insight of one commentator who said this, the only thing heathenism can do against Paul is to shout itself hoarse. So, no matter how many times they gave Artemis glory, no matter how many times they shouted out her greatness, she was impotent to do anything because she didn't even exist. Now, after getting all riled up, the crowd moves into riot mode. Listen then to verses 29 to 32. So, the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. They don't even know why they're there rioting, they're just part of it. Mob mentality had overtaken the crowd, causing so much confusion. In 2020 and 2021, we've seen a lot of that, where people are angry and they don't even know why they're angry or even why they're part of a group mob. Our country has experienced how dangerous and confused and enraged crowd can be. So check this out. As the mob marched up the Arcadian Way, they rushed into the 25,000-seat theater like a raging flood. If you go to Ephesus today, I've never been there, but I'm told that portions of this theater still stand. Now, probably because they couldn't find Paul They grab two of his companions, and they all rush into the theater. That word rush means like a raging flood. These two companions of Paul are like victims for a makeshift gladiator contest. Let me go back to our partner serving in India. They know of angry mobs forming as people turn to Christ. Because here's what's happening in India and other parts of the world. As people turn to Christ, they leave their idol worship behind. Uh, Here's some pictures of what our friends sent. These are actually people who make idols. And when Christians live for Christ, it affects that lucrative business. Earlier this month was the Festival of Diwali, a festival of lights, which really is a worship of Christ. Idols. This is pictures from a local family's idol business. Now, sensing another gospel opportunity, Paul tries to get into the theater, but his friends don't let him go, and they're like, Paul, don't go in. They'll kill you. And not only that, did you see the word? The Asiarchs, those are distinguished officers in Ephesus. They don't want Paul to go in either. By the way, Paul had the ability to build bridges with unbelievers from all classes, he could connect with everyone, with ordinary people and high-ranking pagan officials, but we must do the same. In verses 33 and 34, an attempt was made to quiet the crowd, but it backfires. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So here's what's happening. Many people saw Christianity just as part of Judaism, kind of a sect or part of the Jewish faith. And so they decide, the Jewish people, like, we got to get somebody to stand up and say, we're not part of this. Paul's causing this. The Christians are causing this problem. It's not us. And so they get this guy named Alexander to come. Alexander tries to speak, and they won't even listen to him. See, they don't want to be blamed for all that's going on. And we see again how anti-Semitism rears its ugly head. And the crowd wouldn't even let him speak. Racism is always wrong in any form. Now, we can't be certain, but perhaps this is the same Alexander Paul refers to in 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The only thing the crowd could think to do was to drown out Alexander by shouting with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! makes me think of the showdown on Mount Carmel, First 1 Kings 18.26, when the priest of Baal called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. That's a long time. And here's what they said. They just kept saying it over and over. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. I love what Elijah does. Elijah mocks them. He tells them to shout louder, that maybe Baal can't hear them. Perhaps Baal is deep in thought, or maybe he's on a road trip somewhere, or maybe he's even using the restroom. I also think of Luke 23, 21, where an angry group of people mobilized against Jesus, and they continually shouted words to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. In verses 35 to 41, a second attempt is made to silence the assembly, and this one worked. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's trying to get him to chill. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. He's like, take it to the courts. And there are procouncils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town clerk was like the manager, the city manager, or perhaps the mayor. Uh, Ephesus was considered a free city under the rule of Rome. And so the free cities, they didn't want to get on the wrong side of the emperor and any Any word of a riot or possible sedition would cause Rome to get involved. And so the town clerk tries to settle everything down. Eventually the assembly scatters. I find it fascinating how the town clerk described the character of the Christians. Would you note, verse 37, you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers, of our goddess these believers were living out Colossians 4 5 and 6 walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person let me just point this out they didn't trash the temple they didn't protest their politics they didn't attack their idols what did they do They preached the gospel. And so you and I must be winsome if we hope to win some. Friends, it's costly to follow Christ, but the cost is worth it. Let me ask you three questions. Are you ready to pay the cost to your plans? Question two, are you ready to pay the cost to your own popularity? And thirdly, Are you ready? Because it's coming. Are you ready to pay the cost of persecution for persecution? Friends, since Jesus laid down his life, 43 million Christians have become martyrs. Right now, 200 million people face persecution for believing in Jesus, and 60% of those people are children. According to Open Doors USA, in the last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. In addition, church buildings have been destroyed, they've been vandalized, and people have been put in jail or beaten for no other cause than their beliefs. The top five countries where Christians face the greatest persecution today, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. Well, you can see on this world map, the countries in red are marked restricted, where it's illegal in many of those countries for someone to convert to Christianity. Ponder this verse from Hebrews 13.3. Remember those who are in prison. As though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. How many of you have seen pictures of the shipping containers in the Pacific just waiting, right? And you're like, man, is that stuff ever going to get here? And what's going on with the supply chain and causing prices to go up and people to wait? So I want you to have that image of the shipping containers in your mind. And now I'm going to ask another question. And I'd like you to raise your hand. And when I say a category, if you keep your hand up until I'm finished, how many of you have a sister? Raise your hand if you have a sister. I have four sisters. Do you feel my pain? Keep your hand, or oh, you have six, okay. So keep your hand up. How many of you have a daughter? If you have a daughter, raise your hand up with everybody else's hand. How many of you have a mother? How many of you have a wife? Okay, so just look around the room. You can put your hands down. About a year ago, I heard a podcast by VOM Radio about a woman who had been held captive in a shipping container in the country of Eritrea, that's in the Horn of Africa, so think hot, think no bathroom facilities, think no windows. She was in that shipping container for two years. Okay, you think, oh, that's terrible. Okay, now let's bring it personal. Imagine if that was your sister. Imagine if that was your daughter. Imagine if that was your wife, your mother. Listen, they are your sisters and your brothers. We're on the same team. We're in the same family. And she was in that shipping container simply because she confessed Christ. And, friends, we must pray for our brothers and sisters. The number one request, those who are being persecuted, imprisoned for their faith, the number one request is this please tell Christians around the world to pray for us. And here are four primary needs they ask prayer for. Number one, for their unshakable faith, that they would stay faithful. They also ask that if God would allow them to have Christian community, many of them are in isolation. Thirdly, they pray that they would have access to God's Word, that they'd be able to have a Bible. And finally, they pray for peace and contentment. I'm going to invite you right now to spend some time praying. Use these requests. Think of our brothers and sisters all around the globe and pray these requests for them. Over the years, we've shown videos We've had different people lead in prayer Uh, over the past several years. Every weekend in November, either the first or second weekend, we give attention to this. Well, today I'd like to guide us through some specific requests prepared by Voice of the Martyrs. And by the way, they're one of our GO! team partners as well. Request number one, Christians in Iran risk their freedom and lives to place God's word in the hands of those who do not know Jesus. And so let's pray that every Bible distributed in the country of Iran and in every hostile area and restricted nation will be read or listened to, leading many to new life in Christ. Pray for the country of Iran. Right now. The second request: gospel workers on the front lines of ministry in Central Asia share the gospel with everyone they meet, even with the secret police. And I added this because for the last five weeks or so now, we've been praying every weekend for the missionaries in Haiti who were captured. There's 17 of them, and some of them are children, so let's add that as well. So let's pray for the missionaries who've been taken hostage. Let's also pray for these frontline workers and others like them to continue walking in obedience, walking and joyfully giving their lives in order to lead others to new life in Christ. Go ahead and pray again now. Let's travel next to the continent of Africa. Ethiopian Christians baptize former Somali Muslims in the backyard of a church building that was once a brothel. Let's pray now with thanks to God for these new believers in the country of Ethiopia and others like them who are won to faith in Christ on the world's most difficult and dangerous mission fields. Let's pray again. If God has stirred you this morning and sensitized you to the plight of our persecuted brothers and sisters, let me give you a website that's very easy to remember: VOM, Voice of the Martyrs, VOM.org. If you go there, you'll have access to more prayer requests, updates about what God is doing around the globe. Um, In addition, if you listen to podcasts, I love listening to podcasts. Let me highly recommend one that I try to listen to every uh, week. I listen to the most recent broadcast of it this morning. It's simply called VOM Radio. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. Just type in VOM Radio. Radio. And this morning was a vivid description of what happened in the country of India to an American pastor who went over to minister in that country. The broadcast last weekend uh, contains a number of people praying for persecuted believers around the world, VOM Radio. I'm going to invite you now to stand as you're able, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. This prayer was written by someone who ministers to the persecuted. As I pray, work hard at not letting your mind wander. Let's focus here now on our brothers and sisters in need, and it's our privilege to bring their requests before the throne of God. Loving Lord, we live in an evil world and we know that you're coming back soon for your church. Oh, would you be with all those who are suffering persecution at the hands of so many who would destroy the truth of your word. Help every man and woman, boy and girl, going through some form of persecution today. May you guard and guide and encourage each one no matter where they are. Give them the strength to remain firm in their faith, despite any physical, emotional, or psychological pain they may have to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. Protect and keep each one from harm and danger that stalks their path. Hide them under the shadow of your wings and support and strengthen them in the ordeals that they'll be subjected to. Lord, we come to you united as your church, interceding for our suffering sisters and brothers who are walking the path of persecution and pain for your namesake. Work through the life of each one so that your holy name may be lifted up and cause those who are inflicting such pain on your body, the church, to be brought to the place of true repentance May they turn from their ungodly ways to discover true forgiveness of their sins and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the faithful witness of these dear persecuted sisters and brothers in the Lord. Would you keep each one under your banner of love and may your holy angels minister to all their needs so that they may know your peace in their hearts, a perfect peace that only you can give. Let your peace and joy and love reign in their hearts. Help them to walk humbly before you as they identify with the sufferings the Lord Jesus endured for them. And Father, may their lives and possibly their deaths be a fruitful witness leading to much fruit. And now may we Endure changes in our plans, attacks on our popularity, and the grace to be faithful when we're persecuted right here where we live. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen, amen. You're dismissed. Have a good rest of the day.